0: and welcome to Tonebenders, where we talk with the sonic artists behind our favorite films, games, and series. My name is Tim Muirhead, and I will be your host today as I sit in C5 Studios in New York City. This is really awesome. We get to do the interview today in person. I'm also here with my co-host, Teresa Morrow. Teresa, how are you doing today? I'm
1: good. I'm up and at him, Tim. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, today we're here to talk to Paul Sue about his work on the recent film, Bo is Afraid. If you haven't seen this film yet, go check it out right now. I was actually late to the film, but once I saw it, I really wanted to talk to Paul immediately because the work on it, it just gave me a million questions that I have. This film is full of unlimited possibility in a way that most films aren't. There's a common criticism that goes around with the current state of films that all movies are the same and we've we've seen it all before. This film has put its foot forward to say that no, you haven't. While watching it, the viewer truly has no idea what is coming next. Paul has been on Tonebenders twice before. He's one of our favorite guests. He has an almost comically long credit list on IMDb. I don't know how he's been able to work on so many interesting projects. Paul, welcome back to Tonebenders. Thanks for welcoming us into your space today. Of
2: course. Good to have you here.
0: Awesome. So let's talk about Bo is Afraid.
2: What were your thoughts when you first screened it? Uh, <laughs> well, first, to be clear, when I read the script, I was which was passed to me my, by my uh, my friend Ann Rourke, who's an amazing producer she pitched it really hard to me and said, this is the most incredible script I've ever read. You have to work on this movie. I'm going to set up the interview with Ari and we we have to talk about this. Um, so I was prepped in that way and the script is mind blowing and it's in itself. Um, but then watching the first cut, you know, which is of course rough, literally almost no music, you know, of course no sound. It's really just production cut, you know, back to back. Um, yeah, it was it was it was relentless and mind-blowing in in that state even and not to mention the the, the VFX of course are worth mentioning too because all of the VFX at that point are are nearly non-existent. So, tons of green screen, tons of, you know, that kind of stuff, but if you, you know, you have to use your imagination, but still the through line is is clearly there at that point, so.
0: Well, something that I find Really fascinating uh, in general is the spotting sessions when you sit down with the director mm-hmm. and the producer and do a spotting session. And uh, a lot of time with a spotting session, you know, a car will drive by and they'll say, we need a sound of a car there. And all the sound people are like, yeah, we know. That's not what
2: we're here to talk about. Let's- <laughs> well, to, yeah, to quote my partner, Phil Stockton, see a dog, hear a dog. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's
0: he- <laughs> but like, I can imagine the spotting session for this film because nothing is really what it seems and like y- your first time through... Obviously, you had the script to guide you, but like, how in depth did you go?
2: Well, that's what's interesting. Is I don't think, and this some of this is just my personal, you know, approach to it. But what I've noticed is that the more, the more experienced, or the more the directors who have a more in depth approach, or a, a just a, a a really nuanced but also extremely extensive view on filmmaking, the less spotting we do. So. It's not, we don't really spot, we just have endless conversations and we spend more time doing things together and there's more back and forth and actual trial and error. And it's almost, there's the directors that I like to work with, there's almost a a sort of unspoken, like we're testing each other where I'm waiting to see what they're going to ask for and they're waiting to see if I have an idea that might either line up with what they already thought or hopefully even better surprise or inspire them. So we don't actually we don't do spotting sessions. We we just we just get into the world. We have this weird esoteric conversation like Ari and I had when we first met over Zoom when he was shooting in Canada, and we we just have this conversation about life and maybe a little bit the script and maybe some boring details about like production and then. But we don't go into the concepts so much about like how the movie's gonna sound and. It, for me anyway, it really feels like this, this sort of, it's a bit like a first date where you're sort of like trying to feel the other person out and like, okay, do they, when they say they like cats, do they really like cats or is it because they think I like it? know, that's sort of back and forth. And you're trying to feel the other person out creatively to see if it's going to be a good fit. And that, for me, that just continues into the, the work where we don't sit down and talk about, okay, here, we want to do this. We just sort of just dive in and then try to Catch a sort of a wave of like how we're going to get to the places we need to get, and just with tons of trial and error. Frankly, you know, um, with a little you know little idea pitches as we go. Um, but yeah, I don't. To be honest, I don't. I don't really believe in spotting sessions because it's like because the process is so much more immersive and so much more intense if you just dive in the deep end of the pool and just like go for it and start doing stuff. And that's that's my preference to do it that way.
1: There's something about this film though that the through line. Well, the through line is clear, it's his, it's Bo's story, mm-hmm. but what is it really all about is mysterious.
2: C- correct. Or to that, up but, to
1: interpretation. Well,
2: but and to that point, that's that's what's funny is, I Ari and I have never actually fully spoken about this, but that's also an unspoken no-go zone of like, I never, at no point have I asked him to explain a thing in the movie.
1: Did you have your own series or thoughts about of course. What, which drove your of course. concept?
2: But there was, to me, there was something sacred about. If I ask him, well, what does that mean? Who cares? Like it does. And I think, and I think he's, he. We were talking about the Vanity Fair article a second ago. Like yeah. I think he alludes to that a little bit. Of like he would prefer you to find out. So that I'm sure there are things still. There are scenes in the movie where he. Would, if I said, oh, I think it's about this, he would be like. Are you kidding? Like that's that's not what don't, the movie's don't about. Don't ruin
1: it. Yeah, well, you're just <laughs> or wrong. you Like wrong, that's not
2: yeah. so. So I left that intentionally alone, and we would we would sort of skirt the edge slightly. But yeah, we never got into like literal discussions about like oh what's happening here. Just more. I just I just always prefer like the the the, the weirder like esoteric space of just like because right. you know sound is it's more of an for me it's more of an emotional you know reactive you know environment yeah. where it's like it doesn't you know the this the, the people talking a lot about the story of you know telling the story thing I don't, I don't mm-hmm. I'm not into that at all it's like we're just trying to make the audience feel something yeah. and as long as narratively it's lining up with what he's trying to do yeah. who cares if i Got it wrong. Or so I, you're like
1: you're this like the scene intentions, are you kind of feel like giving it your interpretation? Yeah, of course. Like I I, I know
2: what I think the scene is about. Yeah. And but why do we have to talk about it? If if I do what I do and it somehow it, you know it, it in translation adds up to what he wants the audience to feel, then mm-hmm. we're good. Then I mean, we just <laughs> that that's the goal, right?
1: You got there, yeah. yeah.
2: A recent episode that we did,
0: we got a bunch of people who cut ambiences.
1: Oh,
2: okay.
0: And uh, that's something that rarely gets talked about in the sound world. Ambiences, sadly, sometimes just get farmed out to the intern in some places. Yeah,
2: and they're just it's hard, it's hard to quantify like, yeah. for an audience member. But this film rides a
0: really cool line between where where is ambience and sound design like mm-hmm. like for instance, really close to the beginning of the film, he's sitting in a quiet room, and the ambiences just keep building and building. Mm-hmm. We start hearing more horns hawking outside, more horns hawking, and then it cuts. And the ambience is completely die out. Mm-hmm. And as a viewer, A, you're that's a rare thing to see in a movie. Like just the ambience has changed. And you're like, did did we just jump ahead in time? Like what just <laughs> what it, it puts the viewer completely off kilter?
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's that's to 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 your earlier question about spotting, even though I don't I don't believe in spotting, Ari's a perfect example of how what I do like to do with a certain type of director is just we spend a lot... It's a very intimate process. So we spend... Like, we don't do the traditional pre-mixing and prep. He comes to the studio, and we just start in the first scene. And we just... And there's been a little bit of, you know, maybe maybe the sound effects editor or the folio editor has done some stuff for me, and maybe I've done a little bit of touching the dialogue. But it's really... It's not much, right? It's it's really... it's We're kind of listening to the AAF, right? And then... And we have ideas, and maybe I've recorded things for the scenes or whatever. And then we just start... Building it together from the very first shot, and just work through it. And that, and to to your point, those those kind of ambience things, those those are just those are done in the studio with Ari sitting right next to me. Which is like, he says, "Well, what should we try this?" I thought before we were gonna do this other thing. I cut it in, put it in the mix, play the scene, and then we just get into it as as if he's a mixer in a way, where it's like he says, "Well, no, what if we try this other thing?" And we just do it together. And so that so like the first the first reel of Bo is you know it's that that you could it's like an act basically right but that that first 40 some minutes you know that that's about 3 plus weeks of him coming to the studio every day and we just start and we work one shot at a time through it and then you know do do traditional like playbacks and going back and stuff but mostly it's just working together through it as if he's a sound designer or a mixer and he's just there with me working on it you know that's how we find those beats really just together
1: i feel like that's like when we talk to some sound supers or editors that when there's like a conceptual sound thing Mm -hmm. like those how the ambiences move in this film they're like oh that they did that that was a that was picture editor like that was stuff that was worked out picture edit and like we just ran we just took that idea and elaborated on it but it sounds like some of those concepts were
2: Done, we well done with with exactly yeah. and, and and you know Luke the picture editor would also often was usually there as well mm-hmm. and I, and to be clear like I'm a I'm, I'm when I like when I if I do guest lectures I always make a really strong point about that like half of the sound design happens in the, in the picture edit unquestionably like that's that's where those things are generally developed right 100 percent but then because we specifically talked about working in that way then Luke and Ari would come to the studio and we would then they had they had cert, set certain you know placeholders in 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 place but then they knew okay now when we go over to paul we're going to really explore we're going to start tearing things apart adding doing doing much more you know so that's a little non-traditional in that way exactly where they left it open and then we would just really start to get into the you know to the to the nitty-gritty from there so
0: uh there's another ambience moment in the film that i love I'm going to say that it's beauty because of its simplicity, but you're probably going to say that it was not simple, simple at all. But uh, there's a, about maybe two-thirds, three-quarters of the way mm-hmm. through the film, there's a very fantastical when he kind of goes into the play. Yeah. Uh, and there's animation. And, yep. like It's a very different sequence than the rest of the film. And throughout that entire sequence, there's this kind of uh, drone happening. Mm-hmm. And those kind of sequences, often the hardest thing to do is get out of them. Yeah. And the way you get out of it is the drone stops and just the perfect cricket bed comes up,
2: yeah.
0: and it's like there's, it's a creepy cricket bed, but it's like the exact mood shift, and all it is is just crickets, mm-hmm. and then you're just like, oh shit, something is bad is about to happen. Like, <laughs> this, these crickets do not mean anything good, yeah. But like they're, it's it's the simplicity of it. it's just that sound that we all know, crickets. Mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, yeah. it works so well.
2: And then that's that's a good example, actually. The other thing that i'm I'm really a big believer in, which is as the as the picture edit begins, even like the assembly is happening, is sending sounds to the picture assistant and the picture editor to work with. and that's that's how the drone came about. Like i I would make sounds and then send them over there and they would cut them in, and then they find, to your point earlier, they find the placeholders of you know what's working and then how much can we sustain that. And the other thing, the thing that's very, if you go back and listen to that section, the other thing, it's the really subversive part of it that I'm actually a big fan of is there's connected to that drone, there's also the sound of Joaquin breathing through the entire section. So he's he's there as the person on screen, but he also did a complete take in the ADR studio where he just watched it and was just quietly breathing as if he was observing himself. And so that's actually connected to the drone. And that's what also cuts out at the moment, when we see him on camera, in like in you know quote real life, and the crickets come up, and he's now there with his like you know his children quote unquote, <laughs> and so so that's a big part of the the connection of the drone to which when it's really, when it's taken out, it leaves that void for the you know the crickets. Exactly. To come in,
0: Let's talk about uh, ADR in this film. What's your approach to dealing with the actors? How, how do you get the best out of someone in on the ADR stage?
2: The good actors are are they're really. It's it's a part of their uh, another picture. A picture editor, a friend of mine, always he refers to it as um, having control over their instrument. Right? If they if their their voice and their body is their instrument, right?
1: And their ego.
2: There's that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But but specifically, like a, imagine if you're like a sax player, and you, you instead of a sax, you have your voice, right? And you carry some emotion through that. Some act screen actors. You know, a lot of their, in my opinion, a lot of their their what we love about them is just. We just like to look at them and they're, they're, the, the feeling of them being on screen is what gives them great value and what makes them really interesting. And then stage actors have this ability to like, you know, consistently emote in certain ways. ADR is this weird sort of in-between and not taking anything away from great actors who are not good ADR, at ADR. But to me, the skill of, of being able to control your instrument, to be able to just instantly turn something on, to take, take you take the viewer to a place by emitting something that's a specific skill and i think it's some actors just aren't as good at it you know and that and and actually in, and I, I have an ex- example actually in this movie um, the 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 girl who plays uh, tony kylie rogers i think she's 18 she's 17 18 19 maybe right at the time of shooting and she was incredible she the the the, the paint drinking scene in the movie she came in and she did adr there's only like three lines in that, movie, in that scene but she came in and she did ADR. And we did, when when she's gurgling the paint, Ari wanted her to do a little extra. So we, the the um, intern went to the store and bought some yogurt. And she was in the studio right next door here. And she just basically ingested half a quart of yogurt. <laughs> and, and almost, I mean, she almost passed out. Like she was 100% committed and, and just killed it. Like really, they really did it, you know. And Kylie was incredible. But Joaquin is maybe one of the, I've, I don't think I've ever witnessed that level of like ADR ability. Like, wow. it, and to me, it's all it's it's not just being because I like to do ADR with actors in just on the stage, not without beeps and headphones and other stuff, right? But he did it. He did his ADR in L.A. Um, in in a traditional setting. But the way I can always tell is when you go to mix the ADR into the into the final, and there's the better they are. The less you have to do, and there's a point at which you have to do absolutely nothing, <laughs> and that's that, that's Joaquin. Like you just you you take the first take, you put it up, and you listen to it, and you realize, oh, that's that's actually perfect. It sounds <laughs> exactly like the piece of production right before it, and that's not a technical thing. Yeah, that's because he's brought himself right back to the exact same place where he was the moment that he shot that scene. And it just matches wow. <laughs> and to me that's the that's the ultimate litmus test. it just it just works. And why does it work? Because he's brought it right back to that place you know so So there's a couple
0: sound moments in the film. well, there's many sound moments <laughs> in the film, but uh, a couple that I wanted to talk about. One, uh, I'm a sound editor myself, yep. and uh, there's a scene in the movie uh, where uh, he's in a boat and the engine of the boat starts malfunctioning. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the kind of sound that I have so much trouble with when I'm trying to do this kind of thing because it has to be super interesting, it has to be distinctive, Mm -hmm. but it also has to continue on for a long time while dialogue's going on and it has to be able to pop in and out uh, and it can't sound repetitive. Yep. How do you go about tackling that kind of
2: thing? Well, I mean, I think in a a more traditional action movie, we would replace the whole thing with like a multi-miking situation where you have a mic that's closer to the engine itself, one that's a little more—I mean, it's so, so that you can—you have some range to like let the sound change over time, and then you can control things more. Um, in this case, because because Ari has very sort of rigorous, like, you know, more uh, what's the word? I don't want to say indie per se, but but non like Hollywoodish, you know, tendencies in terms of like how he wants the sound to be approached. Um, more European, I guess, that would be the right word. Um, it that scene is a mix of of production which is good sometimes right and you know field recordings of of boats which have some variance to them right and then foley so it's really it's just a matter of making so all the all the spitting clanking that's all you know foley recordings you know that that are that are performed to the scene to to give you some sort of arc and then the production often has an energy that's just like you can't really replace because it's just so weirdly good right and then you know the sound effects of the boat Doing doing its thing, it's it's really just this sort of dance of trying to find a way to like sustain it over that amount of time, um, and and handing off and then going around again, you know that sort of thing. So.
0: It's a tricky dance for sure, and it works really well in this film.
1: Yeah, that motor almost has, starts to develop a personality <laughs> as yeah. the scene goes on. It's like probably a longer scene of that type than you would normally yeah, have. Exactly. You would yeah. have cut out by a certain yeah, point. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> so uh, another sound moment. We're in a memory. And he's seeing his mother, kind of out of focus, and she's just opening her mouth, and we're hearing this sound that is a, a non-human sound. Uh-huh. And then we slowly start to realize that it's a crow from his present day uh-huh. that's poking into his memory. But that has to be planned out in production. Like, no, no, absolutely not. So how? how is, I, I don't even. How did you time out her mouth and like the actresses to
2: well, do? Well, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the the exact order of events i'm not even going to pretend that i remember what they are but i know what what happened was there was a conversation during the picture edit that involved the picture editor the picture assistant so luke and max and myself and ari where some, and i forget even who it was somebody came up with this idea of wait we're playing the bird sound the weird bird sound in the later scene and then i think it was max it was one of us decided oh what if what if we lined it up with her mouth? And then someone else said, Well, what if that was actually her making the sound? And then we took out a production. And then Zoe Lister Jones, who plays yeah. the, right, the character, came to the studio and we that we did, we did in on the on the stage, me and Ari and her together and Luke. And we played it for her. Just I think if I recall, Ari had this sort of idea of like, well, what if what if she's not okay with it? <laughs> like, what, what if should we play it for her? So we played it for her, and she immediately loved it. And so then we left it, but it was it was it so was it was a scripted line originally that she was yelling something. I, yeah, I, I could I should go back and look at the production, but yeah, I mean she was there is there's production of her doing I don't I don't Ari could correct me, but I don't remember it being a it wasn't a thing. It was a, it was this weird idea that sort of emerged from all of us just bouncing ideas of, off each other, and and then once we once we saw it was working, or we and there was we were there was a little insecurity for a while because we during some some friends and family screenings. That was definitely a question we would ask some people, like, "What, what about that thing? Did you, did you understand it, or did you?" Yeah. So, it, my recollection, it was, it was totally a, a weird, collaborative, organic thing that just sort of evolved over the course of the of the picture edit. But. Well, it
0: worked. I, you faked me out. I assumed that was planned well, well in advance. <laughs> Not at all. And then when,
2: so when Zoe came in to do radar, radio, she then she she's an incredible voice actor herself, so she did she did a sort of like riff on it. Which then there's a little bit of her mimicking the bird, oh okay, to to sort of just help sort of cement it. But the product the production's not in there at all. So, yeah, so. that's all. Awesome. That's oh, after the fact. <laughs>
0: uh, that's a cool story. I, I love those things when they happen. So the very beginning of the film, we start in darkness. There's weird like flashes of light happening, and the sound plays a major role mm-hmm. in the first. Forty-five seconds, a minute and a half. I'm not sure how yeah, long sorry. that it's scene probably is. Probably a minute, yeah. yeah.
2: Before before we come through the
0: light and into mm-hmm. the delivery room. So, was the sound done first or the picture done first on that scene? Because it's quite oh, abstract pictures.
2: Well, it's no, but it's it's that's not. Uh, there's visual effects involved, but that's footage. Yeah. So, sound, picture came first. Yeah. Really. So you were yeah. matching to that. Yeah. And just figuring it out as you go, like. Well, but to your point earlier, that's that's really the the process of picture and you know the placeholders happening in or not even placeholders the final sound sound design much of that is stuff that that Max and Luke did in the Avid right um and then uh, Ari and I had endless go rounds about like very particular elements of it right so i would i would send them sounds that i thought would work little mock-ups of certain areas and then we started doing all these Ari was obsessed with this idea of like as the as the liquid is passing over your ears so he would just he would come to the studio and he would just give me these, these examples. He'd be like, you know, when it goes like this, and he would take his hands and like fluff them past his ears really hard. He's like, you know, when you do that thing, like when, you're, when, it's, when your ears are like not quite functioning and, you know, and so, so he was obsessed with this sound being a very particular thing. So I sent them a whole bunch of stuff, which they cut in, and then we just did a a, a billion wild Foley sounds. So, you know, it's the usual stuff like vegetables and goopy, goopy substances. I would take, uh, you know, labs and, wrap them in tape or take, you know, take a, you know, a, a, a hydrophone and put it inside of, we just did everything we could think of, you know, pumpkins and yogurt and dog food and and Jello and like, air, air, and in different size containers and like, you know, just to try to create some sort of thing. So we just did hundreds of recordings of like, which is probably plays as, you know, 45 frames in in that entire section, right. but just through the method part of it of just like giving them endless ideas of like or we're just taking a mics and abusing them, just taking an old mic and just like hitting it, dr- dropping it, trying to make it crackle and do just to do all to give them the raw material, to, you know, to try to find something that they reacted to. So the so that section, 90 of that is the stuff that they cut in the Avid, and then once they came to the mix, then we you know the low frequency is sort of like the. Which in a way is is a is a an overarching thing. Hopefully for you know mixes, it's like the low frequency and the high frequency is sometimes the hardest stuff, right? So, bringing in more succinct, you know, LFE and low frequency stuff, and then the really really super high frequencies, really dialing in those things in a very particular way that gave Ari the feeling he was looking for. But the real the core of it was all put in in the Avid, you know. But based on stuff you've yeah, based on it. stuff that I sent for them exactly yeah. yeah.
0: So, what was your what was the schedule like on this show? Like, because there's, a, we did a, say
1: it is, this it, it feels kind of like five,
2: movies distinct in one. movies. Yeah,
1: yeah. And, and it is the runtime is three hours, almost. And,
2: yeah, almost um,
1: just under
0: three, three hours, yeah. hours. Yeah, just under three hours. That's but three hours. the s- credits, the size of the crew is very small. Yeah, like it's like three yourself. I think two or three editors. Yeah, it's and the very Foley
2: sm- team, basically. It's very small. Yeah, exactly. But that's we agreed. At the beginning, to to approach it that way, it doesn't, that style doesn't fit every film. But it's it's definitely one of my favorite approaches where, and Ari and I talked about that a lot at the beginning. It's the idea is to sort of bring all the big budget ways of making movies that we know we can do with lots of crew and lots of people and you know enough time. But then the really intimate, like you know, bespoke handheld process of you're doing this very specific thing with one or two people really. It's like the director and the picture editor ultimately. And there's of course then there's the expanding ring of other people who are essential. But really it comes down to, you know, you and the director. And in this case, if the picture editor is very close to this to the collaboration, which Luke is very much so with Ari, it's really those the two or three of you, right, doing this thing. And so I built the schedule specifically that way from the beginning, where, and this was all very, very you know repeatedly explains that we all understood what we were doing but we just we just mixed for a really long time <laughs> like, we just it's it just you know i i a, a friend actually likes to keep track of the hours that the directors at the mix and without naming any names the person he was working with had been at the mix for and for t- something like 28 hours and this was a, a feature final mix right and because they have a long-term relationship and i've been in situations like that too like it all came out great, right? But the director was literally in the studio for 28 hours total mm-hmm. for a feature-length film, right? I, I really should have calculated from the beginning, but I realized with Ari, it was it was well into the high 400s, like it was in final mix. That we spent a lot of time <laughs> mixing, just slowly going going through everything over and over and over again, and that's the only way for me to that I thought we could really get to a place where it, the movie felt big. But also very, very, every, everything was crafted very specifically with him, you know. So that was that was all very, very intentional. So is this on a pre-mix stage or on a final mix? Like, where? oh, we would do. Uh, I mean, our our rooms are set up for you know pre-mixing bigger movies or finaling smaller movies. So, I mean, a a, a small stage, you know, but a, but a, an Atmos, yeah. you know, Meyer speakers stage like where you final a movie, but you know, not not on a huge lot. Like in LA or anything like that, yeah, yeah. but but then we, then we went to you know we went to, to bigger rooms to do do you know final final tweaks with producers and playbacks and stuff like that. Um, but that's the great thing about having a really you know I actually prefer like a really tight proportional, very well tuned smaller room because you can hear reflections and reverbs and stuff more accurately. And then if it translates well enough, then you know when you go to a bigger room, you have the experience of being in a bigger space. But it. It sounds the same, except you can actually get a little more detail in the smaller. So I actually prefer that to spend spend more time in a really good sounding, tighter, smaller sounding studio. That then you take it to a, to a bigger room and go back. And the key is to go back and forth. That's why that's why temp mixes are. That's the the real value of temp mixes. You know, you go you you do it in the studio, then you go watch it in a 500 seat theater, then come back to the studio. That that endless go go around is is essential. And you're you're handling everything on the faders, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah and it's fun I love mixing with other people, but certain movies it's if you know what you want, the fastest route is to do it yourself <laughs> like... so when when you got
0: to the we mentioned earlier this fantastical kind of animated, mm-hmm. did you approach the sound design
2: of that sequence differently? Not differently, but what I for me the the and i I tend towards this in general but definitely in this movie for me the 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 key thing was to f- to find these ways to sort of do these little sonic magic tricks where you don't because are you the, the writing in that center section everyone has their favorite parts of the movie those who like it right but that that center section with the animation to me is my favorite because it's so it feels so metaphysical and and just like it's just the depth of it is so understated, but you don't even, the writing is so brilliant. You don't even know, you're not sure what you're watching, but you're engaged. You, you don't know who this person is exactly or what, why they're even telling you the story, but you're listening. Like that, all those levels, to Ari's credit, are so well done. So for me, the sound was, it was important that that have that same feeling where you, you want to arrive at a, you want the viewer to arrive at a place, but they don't know how they got there. And that was so that that was a key element of it. But all of those transitions, I was trying to do that in every place, right? So when he's in the when he's in the in the in the back of the car and they've given him the the the, the drugs the, jo- the, the drugs to smoke, he that the whole goal was from I wanted to get there's you know the obvious nature of like someone having a you know a, a tripping on drugs, but then what was really important to me was to to for us to arrive because then at the, at the end of that scene you arrive on the cruise ship. With his mother, and that transition is completely seamless. It's 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 essentially like a it's it's a six-minute pre-lap, <laughs> basically, right? So so you when when the when you get on the boat, there is no sound change. You haven't, but yet you've been in this drug trip for several minutes. So how is it that the ambience and the sound design and all the all the all the the sound of the voices and everything? sound the way they sound and appropriate in the car, but then you get on the boat and they're still appropriate. So that blurring and that like super long pre-lap was really important to me to so that we get there and we don't know how we've arrived. And the animation section was the same way. It was like every I wanted every transition to feel like it's been coming for so long that when the cut arrives, you don't you not even know how you arrived there because you've been hearing this thing that makes sense in the other scene, which is completely you know different from where you are now but where you are also seems to make sense so i was really trying to make that to follow the lead of like the script of doing this thing where you everything is sort of upside down but has been already happening in this weird (laughs) weird antithetical way that's
1: i I, that's just really like psychologically profound that you're able to echo that concept with the the soundtrack it's the fun of it it's just really smart yeah
0: Awesome. Well, thank you very much for inviting us in and having this talk with us. It's uh, as I mentioned in the intro. It's just an endlessly inventive film that there's so many things that just happened where I was like, I did not expect that to happen. Where is this going now? What's going on? Uh, but in a way that I felt, at least, it invited you along with it instead of making it, instead of alienating you. That's great.
2: Well, and great to have you in person at the studio too. It's awesome. Thanks so much.
0: Paul is the best. He's always a joy to speak with. I hope we get to talk to him again in the future. It was great of him to welcome us into his studio and be an excellent host. This episode was volunteer edited by Kyle Bailey. Kyle is a violinist and sound designer for games. He wants to encourage those who are able to offer internships to upcoming audio professionals. It can truly change someone's life. What a great message, Kyle. And I agree, it can be an incredibly rewarding experience for both the mentor and the mentee. Thanks so much for your detailed and excellent work, Kyle. He will be getting a copy of the excellent SFX library, Sonic Springs, from Katrine Amsler. Listeners should make sure they have a copy in their own library, because it's really great. On behalf of Teresa and Paul, thanks for listening to Tone Menders. Please help us out by sharing on social media. I cannot tell you how much that means to us. Okay, talk to you soon.
2: Tonebenders is produced by Timothy Neerhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. The music is by mark straight send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com follow us on twitter via at the tonebenders and join tonebenders podcast on facebook support this podcast you can use our links when you shop with amazon or bnh or leave us a tip just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button thanks for listening
0: are you looking for more audio related podcasts to listen to Tonebenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.